Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, from the flight deck, presented by dial pilot of course, my name's Kyle, and uh, I'm here with Joey, uh, and we're excited to be back for our fourth episode, and this has just been such a fun uh, thing to get into, Joey. I've, I've really enjoyed hosting uh, this with you. Uh, I saw that you were out in, I think it was Atlanta, doing some stuff with the aviation community this week. Is that right? Yeah, so um, my airline, uh, as part of outreach, partners with an organization called Organization of Black Aerospace Professionals. And essentially, my airline lets us rent a 757 for the day. I wasn't one of the people that actually flew it, but I was a part um, of it in the back in the, uh, in, in the coach class, if you will. And uh, essentially, we wear our full uniforms, and we bring out a bunch of young aviators that want to learn how to fly. Uh, eventually, they're usually in high school, middle school. Um, and then we take them to a location. This time was NAS Pensacola. And essentially, we get to hang out with the Blue Angels. This day uh, was that. Uh, we watched a Blue Angels practice, and then we went and toured the Naval Air Station, which was really cool. But being able to give back is a lot of fun. Being able to wear the uniform and, and kids looking up to you, uh, it reminds me of what, when I was a kid, um, what I wanted to do. Uh, if you remember back to my story, though, I wasn't really a kid when I des decided what I wanted to do. But when I was a 20-year-old, uh, I looked up to everybody in uniforms. And so it's cool to give back. Um, and then right after that was done, I had CQ, which we talked about in a previous podcast. Uh, again, that's continuing qualification, recency. Uh, we come back every nine months and we practice engine fires, fires, cargo fires. Feel free to check out that podcast if you want to learn more on that. But that's what I just finished, and then uh, here we are recording this podcast on Friday. How about you? What would you do? Awesome, man. Uh, well, good to go for another nine months. That's uh, CQ for you. So, And uh, if you are listening to this and you're curious what episode it was, it was episode two that we talked about pilot training, and CQ just stands for continuing qualification. We'll let that episode handle that, but uh, always nice to, to check that off and, and kind of get refreshed in the box. I will say, Joey, on your story, uh, first of all, amazing that you get out there and do that. I, I always love seeing what you're up to throughout the week. Joey uh, volunteers his time so significantly with his, his, excuse me, his airline. And one other thing I'll, I'll point out on this, uh, you oftentimes hear us referring to our airlines, but not by their name specifically. And there's a reason for that. And it's just simply that we don't represent that airline in doing this service. And so we just want to make sure that we're kind of keeping that little bit of separation we both very much love the airlines that we work for, but I just wanted to point that out, that that is the reason that we do that. So, uh, Joey, though, on going to NAS Pensacola, you probably know this because I'm just the same as every other aviation geek. I love the Blue Angels. Every time they fly over, I am ready to join the military. And uh, <laughs> there's this this new social media channel out. I think it's called Blue Angel Phantoms. And it has all these historic videos of the Blue Angels actually flying like with cockpit audio. And the crew communication and coordination that those guys have, guys and gals, is just amazing. Watching them do what they do is is astounding. So I, I always uh, thoroughly enjoy watching that and hearing the cockpit audio. And, I mean, they're just the creme de la creme of, of aviators. So uh, awesome that you got to go down there and interact with them. Uh, we have another buddy that actually coordinates the Traverse City Michigan Air Show, and he gets to work with the Blue Angels too. So, really cool that uh, that you guys got to go down and do that. To answer your question, though, uh, my week this week was my last flight on the seven thirty seven. So I'm excited, man. I uh, I'm headed to the triple seven. I start that November fourth. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, head to the triple on November fourth, and the triple seven goes. Uh, international, so it does our long, long flights from San Francisco. So we'll go all over the world with that thing. About 360 passengers. Uh, I've been waiting to go over to this airplane for about a year, so I'm really excited at the opportunity to go do that. So uh, just been doing all my training on that and getting ready. So yeah, I went to the Fort Lauderdale boat show on my last uh, my last layover on the 737. Got to go check the boats out. That was cool. So, anyways, all that to say. Uh, Joey, I'm excited for this one. We're going to do a Q&A session from our TikTok comments. We get about, oh gosh, I don't even know. We have so many comments on there, though. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500. 
in that range. So Joey and I just went in and, and chose some at random, and uh, we're just gonna take a look at those and, and start answering them. So Joey, you wanna you wanna fire the first one off? Yeah, absolutely. So this one comes from uh, Sarah Larso, and also sorry if I butcher any of the any of these usernames. I'll do my best. Uh, again, this one comes from Sarah Larso. And it looks like she asks, how do you deal with cockpit toxicity, i.e. captain, first officer, indifferences? And she says, I watch too much air disasters with the, with the hand over the face emoji. The face palm emoji. Um, this is a great That's question. And uh, I'll, I'll jump on this one. So cockpit toxicity i will say fortunately so my airline has something like seventeen thousand pilots at this point i've flown with with a with a lot i've flown with a lot of pilots and a significant majority are just great personalities really easy to get along with you know personalities mostly mesh it seems like in the airline world because we all kind of have a similar uh you know disposition as to what we do and and accomplishing a similar goal but every once in a while of course you're going to run into somebody that you just uh, maybe not a lot of common with or uh, something like that happens. So uh, our airline does a really good job. They do this cool thing in training. I've always really liked it. It's called the disc assessment. A lot of folks have probably taken it uh, for work and it separates your kind of personality into four different quadrants. And so there's the D quadrant, the I, the S and the C and I fall right in the kind of SI area, which means I like to support people and I like to kind of get out there and talk and kind of get a team going. Like that, that's kind of where I fall. And then it's fun because I can get in the airplane and within about, I don't know, maybe, maybe two or three minutes, I can kind of start to figure out where the captain falls on that spectrum. And it's nice because then you know, hey, okay, you fall this area on it, this means that you're really strong at, like a C would be really good at fuel planning. And so like, hey, you hammer that, and we obviously both know how to fuel plan, but like you take care of that because that's where you really like to be, and I'm going to take care of the PA announcements because that's where I really like to be. So you can kind of sort that out. Now, that's just one of the tools to help. Now, let's say you know, you're know you flying, and, and to answer Sarah's question, you actually run into an issue where you're kind of not really getting along or, or you're having a communication breakdown. We actually have a series of words that we use that are designed, and we're trained for this, that if either one of the pilots say them, you are... You're, you're trained to, okay, hang on, what's going on here? Let's, let's zoom out. Let's take a look at the big picture and understand why this person is concerned with this situation or they're uncomfortable with this situation or at the most extreme, they believe that this situation is unsafe. So we use those three words. Uh, if, if anything has ever progressed to a point where it's like, Hey, I don't like what's going on here. And then there's a lot of other options too. So I personally never had to use any of those, uh, tools, which I'm very grateful for because I think that speaks to the professionalism of the pilots, but we also have tools too, that we can go to and, and use to actually, uh, bring a kind of third party in and say, hey, we're kind of having a little bit of a disagreement. Can you kind of help us get to a point where, where this, you know, where we can find common ground to work together? Or, hey, maybe this trip isn't just going to work. We, we need to, you know, we need to recruit this trip. So it's never penalized to have something like that. I always like to point that out in these calls that the pilots are absolutely encouraged that safety is the number one priority. And if something like, you know, a personality conflict would maybe degrade safety. We are very much encouraged to to kind of stop the train and, and just say, hey, let's let's recruit this one. It's not going to work. You have anything to add on that, Joey? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, since me and Kyle worked in recruitment um, and interviewing at our at our previous airline, I think it's important to note here that every airline has its own culture um, to a certain degree. Obviously, pilots are Type A, and you know we're all somewhat similar, but in general, each airline has its own culture. And so it's up to the interviewers and the recruiters to determine if an individual fits that culture. Obviously, there's going to be everybody's cleared to be their own individual. But to a degree, we want to get people of like minded as far as culture. So I think a lot of this tries to get weeded out even before the pilot is ever on campus or, or flying the aircraft. Are they going to be a good fit for the airline's culture? And hopefully that weeds out um, you know, some of this stuff, but all that stuff is great. Um, and, and having gone to the universities like we did, uh, we get 
harped on with CRM or crew resource management uh, from the inception of becoming a pilot. And, and a lot of the crew resource management, some of that has to do with dealing with individuals that you're not getting along with. Um, and another piece I'll say is that the airlines and back in history have understood that this is a problem. And so our the way in which we do checklists, the way in which we have procedures is really so that it can be plug and play. No matter what your beliefs are, no matter what you believe in, all the, all those different things, the, the procedures and the checklists are meant to kind of take all that away. And now you're just interacting with someone who's doing the same stuff. So, um, yeah, well said. But again, I think at the beginning, uh, before you even hire a pilot on, you're, you're trying to f- see if they're going to be a right fit for your culture, which hopefully takes away a lot of these these problems. Next question uh, is from Patty0915. Thank you for the question, Patty. There's a few questions like this. So we'll, we'll kind of, if there's another follow-up question that is similar, we'll, we'll mention that. But this question is, why is takeoff and landing the most dangerous part of the flight? And I'll just kind of put my two cents and then I'll, I'll push it over to Kyle here. Uh, Takeoff and landing, I think when you think about it, what we're doing is extraordinary. We're taking an uh, airplane that in some cases weighs pushing a million pounds and taking it up into the air. And with that comes inherent risks. Uh, And so I think there's a lot of variables that are happening here uh, on takeoff and landing. The wind, um, external pressures, air traffic control, passengers, taxi times snow, de-icing, all these different things kind of accumulate to make this somewhat of a, I don't want to say dangerous, but challenging um, situation. So there's a lot of safety menu, uh, safety parameters built in so that it doesn't become dangerous, like the question says. And it just is that challenging. And another piece with this is training. We always start with a takeoff, and we obviously always end with a landing. So we're practicing these things so much, and uh, I, I think there's a reason for that because of all the things I just mentioned. Um, we won't get into the the takeoff and the specific profiles and the landings. We've done that, but I do just want to answer it straight up and say, yeah, there's just a lot going on during these phases of flight, which makes it challenging. And another piece is that we're actually hand-flying this for the most part. Um, I think there, there's a question later that asks about, like, autopilot, but uh, during these phases of flight, we're the ones actually flying, which just adds another um, level of complexity and and challenging. But I will also say, and I I say this on the calls a lot, um, this is probably our favorite part of the flight is the takeoff and the landing, simply because we are actually flying it, specifically the landings. Pilots take extreme pride in their landings. And for some people, I'm not going to name names like uh, myself, um, if it's a bad landing or a really tough landing, it goes home with me. Like, I don't just leave that at the airport. Uh, you know, we all take pride in our landing. So it is the time that we're having the most fun. Um, we're very excited to do the landings, again, because it's time that we get to fly the airplane. Kyle, what, what do you got to add to that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, very true. Definitely for me, the landings are my favorite because it's kind of, you know, whenever somebody walks off the airplane, no matter how good your fuel planning was and, oh, we saved a thousand pounds of gas coming across the ocean today, something like that. If you if you put the landing on a little strong, that's what they're going to remember. So I, you know, a little bit of a point of pride. I always like to try and get a good landing. Uh, So so that's always fun. Uh, I will say my landing last night was butter, but uh, that's not the important <laughs> part. What I will say is uh, the takeoff and landing, when I get this question, I often kind of, times kind of take a couple extra questions in and I go, okay, wh- what makes you think that? What makes you say that? And the answer is 99% of the times this. Well, I've seen statistics that airplane crash, uh, airplanes crash on takeoff more than any other phase of flight. And I'm like, okay, well, let's think about this. And And just to reiterate what you said, what it really boils down to is we're in a high threat environment. There's a lot of, well, there's the ground. The ground is hard. We don't want to run into that. Uh, There's other airplanes in the area. There's other cars transiting the area on the airport. And so, uh, you know, we're interacting with air traffic control. We're taxiing out to the runway. We're running our checklist. We're configuring the airplane. So there's a lot of things that go into this. It's, it's a highly choreographed dance. And so we have gotten to the point where we are really good about making sure that we get all of that right. And we do it via exactly what Joey alluded to five minutes ago or so. 
the procedures and the checklists and the communication and making sure that, hey, we are on the same page and we are taking this airplane at this weight with these weather conditions and these passengers airborne. And we both agree that it is a safe and smart, intelligent thing to do. And so once we get to that point, we go, okay. And then there's other parts of the takeoff that, uh, you know, air traffic control is managing as far as ensuring that there's appropriate aircraft separation and all those things. And those are all very well automated now. So I think historically, when we look back at accidents of years past, we do see a lot of accidents that happen in the takeoff and landing phase. And then we have now gone to a point of using those accidents to learn from them and get to a point where we're really safe now. So Again, we talk about this with the chimes, too, coming through 10,000 feet. That means, you know, you get the high-low chime, ding, ding. That really means that now we're at a sterile cockpit, and we're in sterile cockpit, meaning don't contact the pilots uh, unless there's some sort of safety of flight issue because we're in that high-threat environment, and there's a lot of airplanes flying around. And so we're just using all of our attention to ensure that we are in a place that that we deem as appropriate. So. You know, I don't think that takeoff is is a dangerous thing. It gets loud. There's a lot of vibrations going on. You know, you can't really, like, as a passenger, you can't look out the front and see how much runway we have remaining. So it can be a scary thing, which is why we talked about it in episode one. Um, But, you know, I I don't think it's really the – statistically, it is not going – it doesn't mean, oh, something's going to happen during takeoff and landing. All right, Joey, this one comes from Laura Wears Leggings. Takeoff is so scary. Anything that breaks it down is helpful. You want to jump on that one? Yeah, absolutely. So this kind of goes into what we were talking about, so I'll keep it brief here. But uh, really the one thing that I get asked the most uh, on takeoffs, there's a lot of things I get asked. But one of the things I like to hit on because people seem to get worried about it, even when I'm sitting in the back and I – I'm seeing everybody's expression, is you take off at this higher power setting, or so they think. Um, you know, we sometimes derate takeoff power based on atmospheric conditions and, and length of runways. But for whatever it's worth, high power setting when you're going from zero and accelerating. Then you take off, and anywhere from, you know, 10 to 12 seconds later, all of a sudden the engines come back and it, the nose comes down, and that sometimes gives you that weightless feeling, and there's a big noise change. And so I just wanted to hit this one thing on what's going on. What's happening there is if you think about a car, right, when you're driving around, you don't just always mash the the throttle and go as fast as you can when you're driving down a highway. You want to protect the engine, and that's what we're doing here. We don't need to climb up to altitude at max power because we've done the calculations, the airplane has generated numbers, climb speeds for us, thrust settings for us on the way up. And so what we're doing there, and that happens at about 1,000 feet, is we're bringing the power back to our climb setting. And so it can sound drastic, especially if your pilots just did a full uh, power takeoff, um, and then they bring it back to the climb setting. So just know that that is completely normal. It's something that we're doing to protect the engines so that they have better longevity. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a question that I get a lot. And so I just figured with that one, since we hit the takeoff, um, that's kind of what I wanted to bring up, uh, as far as one of the things that makes takeoff scary, quote unquote, again, Kyle and I don't think any of this is scary, but we really like to talk about these things, obviously to just give you an eye into what we're thinking about during these phases of flight that you think are scary. So that's the whole purpose, um, of answering these questions. The next question comes from Canada. Um, I don't know if this individual represents all of Canada, but this individual's username is Canada. So Canada asks, often pilots know that there will be a thunderstorm or strong wind or turbulence and fly anyway. Why? So I'll just give my quick two cents here on this. Um, yeah, we do know that there's there's potentially going to be a thunderstorm in route or strong wind or turbulence on the other end. But when when you come back to it, uh, you got to remember that it's a business that we're trying to run, not that me and Kyle are running, but that our airline is trying to run. And so as long as it's within the safety parameters of the aircraft, of the crew, and of the airport, we're going to go fly. Um, Now, with that being said, if any of these things get to the point where we don't feel they're safe as the pilots up front, We'll do what's called a diversion. And so I don't know if this question is asking about the in route, because if it's in route, 
especially with thunderstorms, we're just going to avoid them. Uh, we have radar on our aircraft. Uh, air traffic control has radar that they can see. Our dispatchers who are managing our flight across the country or across the ocean or wherever we're flying are also watching and can let us know where there's thunderstorms. So I, I think this question is asking about at the destination or at the departure airport. If any of these are at the departure airport, specifically thunderstorms, you're just not going to be able to go. The, thun the, the airport will actually shut down um, if a thunderstorm is bad enough. And the ramp, what the ramp is, is where you push back to, uh, will shut down if there's lightning within a certain distance of the airport. So to answer that piece on the departure airport side, if there's a thunderstorm, you're just not going anywhere. Um, if there's a thunderstorm at the airport you're going to, depending on the f length of the flight, you still may take off. Um, but as you get closer, if the thunderstorm stayed or it didn't move off the airport, you'll do what's called a diversion. And there's a lot of moving pieces with this. The dispatcher will help us decide which airport we're going to go to. We're going to be looking at other airports that have weather. And already back when we took off, the fuel had been put on the aircraft so that we can go to what we call an alternate airport. So for Canada's question here, if a thunderstorm was where we were supposed to be or there was winds that were potentially above the limitations of the aircraft, our dispatcher would have seen that and put an alternate airport on our flight plan, which means we're going to go to our destination airport, but if it doesn't look great, we're going to go to our alternate airport that we've been monitoring the entire time as well. Um, and the fuel is already on board. So that would be my two cents on this piece. Uh, Kyle, what, what else, what am I missing there? Yeah, I, uh, well said, Joey, um, and thank you to uh, Mrs. Canada for the question. Uh, the one thing I will add is, although Joey said, uh, you know, the airline is a business at the at the end of the day, we as the pilots are not incentivized by any means to get the flights done. So we are not going to take any risk that is uh, not something that we feel that is completely appropriate, and that is pretty well justified and well explained by the Federal Aviation Administration in giving us the parameters of flight that we can actually, or I'm sorry, the parameters of the weather that we actually can go fly in. And that would be uh, thunderstorms at the at the destination airport, thunderstorms at the departure airport. Uh, they don't really talk about turbulence. Turbulence is more of a, it's more of an inconvenience and it's something that we flight plan our way around but again, as we've talked about numerous times on turbulence, turbulence is not dangerous for the structural integrity of the aircraft. So what we'll do is when we go and we are you know, ready to, to go fly to an airport, and if there's weather there and we get to the airport and it's not good enough, as Joey said, we'll just turn around. We'll go somewhere else. And we carry the gas to do so. So we will go and always have an option to go elsewhere is, is I think really the big thing here is you can kind of go and uh, quote-unquote, take a look, if you will. Granted, we're never going to take a risk that we don't think is something that's acceptable, but we can go in and say, hey, at the time that we got here, is the weather good enough for us to land? No. And let's say we're flying to somewhere like San Francisco. Okay, let's go to San Jose or Oakland or Sacramento, somewhere that's nearby but has much improved weather conditions uh, because weather conditions are surprisingly uh, micro-located, if you will. Just a couple miles away, the weather can be better. So, we always carry the fuel to make sure that we can get on the ground somewhere safely. And that's kind of the idea behind that. And one other thing I'll add on that, let's say you're coming out of New York city. This is a great example of a place that does this all the time. And they say, Hey, we're delayed for weather. And you look up and there's, there's no weather to be seen. What that really means is that there's weather somewhere in the vicinity of the airport. It could be a hundred miles to the West, but it's shutting down an arrival or departure gate, meaning all of the airplanes, when they take off, they have to kind of get in line and go out to this, this specific departure gate together. If that shuts down, it will delay and impact how many flights can actually take off and arrive at that airport at any given time. And again, that's out of an abundance of caution and, and to ensure that we, have, we operate at a high level of safety. So we're constantly, constantly monitoring the weather, and we're not going to take an airplane flying into weather that we think is unacceptable from a safety standpoint. All right, so for the next question, we have one from uh, Ulpi, U-L-P-I, uh, the username. And the question is, if I get sick in the middle of the flight and the plane needs to do an emergency landing, do I need to pay something? And let me caveat this answer real quick, Joey, before you jump into it. We are not the airline, and we do not speak on behalf of the airline. So our understanding is what Joey's about to say, but I want to just say that this is not legal advice by any means. So, Joey, <laughs> jump in. 
Yeah, it's it's a question, and and like Kyle said, um, you know, we can't speak on behalf of of any airlines here, but in general, based on case studies of other airplanes that have had this problem or individuals that have had this problem, if you're truly sick and there's something wrong, obviously they're not going to make you pay when you land. Again, this depends on the airline, but we practice emergency landings based on sickness, and, and to be honest, most of the emergency landings that you hear about in, in a day today, or if you ask a pilot, hey, have you ever had to do an emergency landing somewhere? Uh, we call it something different. We call it like a medical emergency. Uh, when I say emergency landing, that, that sounds scary, but usually we'll call it a medical emergency. But yeah, this is the most common emergency, is a medical emergency. Whether it's en route or you, you land or it's on the taxi out, this is pretty common. So if you're truly sick or something's happening, you know, the, the airline is most likely going to cover that. Now, if it's a unruly passenger or, you know, a jerk or whatever, that passenger is going to be responsible for the payments. Obviously, there's a lot of litigation and things that go into this. But just to answer the question, that's how it is. Now, one way I wanted to go kind of on a different track here is that if you do get sick en route, your pilots have access to doctors while they're in the air. So it uh, depends on the airplane and depends on, on how it's configured, but some airplanes have sat phones. What sat phones are, whenever you've seen those movies where they have these big brick phones and they take out a big antenna on it and they can call someone across the world, um, that's a sat phone. And a lot of these air, airplanes have them hard-tuned uh, into the airplane, and you can call really anyone with these phones Specifically, in this case, you can call a doctor. Uh, different airlines use different services, but essentially it's a doctor on call 24-7, and you can call them, tell them the symptoms of the individual. Uh, before this, I should say, this is when you're going to hear the flight attendants make the PA. Are there any medical professionals on board? And and those individuals are going to start helping the passenger initially, but then it's going to be escalated up to the pilot's who are going to call this 24-7 doctor, and the doctor is going to let us know if there's something that we can do with what we have on the airplane with our medical kits or our enhanced medical kits to help this individual, or the doctor can let us know, hey, you need to do a medical diversion uh, now. This individual's life is in, in, is in danger. So we let them make that call. Obviously, the, the, the pilots aren't medical professionals. But there is services that each airline has that we can get you the care that you need. Um, and then uh, on top of that, um, air traffic control deals with these things a lot. They understand these things. But for the most part, we're going to call the doctor, the service. There's doctors on boards, and they're going to get you the care that you need. Because we do quite have quite a bit of stuff on the airplanes to help um, with these different medical problems that arise and again it is definitely the most common emergency wouldn't you say kyle yeah i would agree with that as far as you know when we quote unquote declare an emergency meaning we tell air traffic control hey we we need priority handling and we need to get on the ground uh, with urgency i would definitely assume again an assumption that that a medical emergency is the number one reason we would do that granted in my career i've had I've never diverted for a medical emergency. I've declared an emergency once for it. Um, but what I'm really excited about, actually, on this note, this is a, a really big question that we get. We actually have a an ER doc that's going to come on the podcast and talk all about this. And he's studied up on the medical professional service that we use, uh, which is our which are a team of ER physicians that we can actually have that communication with and, and relaying symptoms and they can provide their recommendation and then us pilots actually make the decision on, on what to do. Now, granted, I think something that's really important here also to note from a pilot standpoint. Now, let's say that, that you're on a flight and somebody has a medical emergency, which is likely more what's going to happen, right? You know, if we, if we look at the sheer statistics of things. If the, air, if the pilots decide that they need to get the airplane on the ground, it's going to get bumpy for a few minutes because now we're trying to get the airplane from 35,000 feet down to 10,000 feet rather quickly because this person's life is you know, relying on it. Once we get down below 10,000 feet, though, everything's going to feel like a pretty normal approach because at that point we then go back into my number one job is ensuring the integrity of this aircraft and the passengers on board. And so rushing 
is when we run into problems and when pilots make errors. And so we are trained and there are policies and procedures in place that keep us from doing that. And so we have a checklist and we always have our stabilized approach criteria, which is, as we've talked about previously, if you break that stabilized approach criteria, you are required to do a go around. So we still follow all of that in the event of a medical emergency and getting that uh, affected person on the ground. So we, we're going to ensure that the safety and integrity of the airplane is, is number one uh, overall while we're in the process of, of diverting that airplane onto the ground to get that person into the, the hands of uh, capable and qualified medical professionals in order to assist them. So I just wanted to throw that out there as well, uh, you know, to kind of take it a, at another angle. 100%. Uh, next question is from Mandy Wagner, 169er. What are your thoughts on prop planes? I have to take an ATR prop plane on Thursday, and I'm not feeling great about it. Well, I, before Kyle talks about, because uh, he has more experience with prop planes, there's two different kinds of prop planes. The prop plane that you're going to be flying on at a commercial airliner is a turbine aircraft versus a piston aircraft. And we're not going to get into the differences there, but just know that turbines are very reliable. Turbines are the exact same engine uh, that we have on the on the big airliners or, or, or not a prop plane, if you will, a turbine engine. Um, but it's completely safe. Kyle will get into it. But what I wanted to hit here is that if an airline is flying a airplane, it has been vetted the same no matter if it's a prop plane or if it's a 747 by the FAA, by the manufacturer, by the airline in order to fly its passengers. So it really doesn't matter what they're flying. If they're flying it, they deem it, the government deems it, everyone deems it uh, adequate, safe, and it reads all the same regulatory requirements that a 747 does. So uh, don't, don't be too worried about what type of aircraft it is. We're going to get into something specifically um, here with aircraft that Kyle flies uh, momentarily, but just know if you're on it in the United States, it's been vetted. Um, and it's good to fly on. So that's my two cents. Kyle will go into it a little bit more. Yeah, so uh, as Joey alluded to, I am a massive fan of flying propeller airplanes. In fact, it's it's one of my favorite things uh, to do. So when I when I hang it up at the airline for for the week, I actually like to go fly the little airplanes around and, and go explore. So uh, Joey mentioned that a prop airplane comes in kind of two shapes and sizes, and one is a piston, which is the stuff that I'm flying around. It's a small, small airplane, 300 horsepower in the engine, and uh, much more similar to like what a car engine is that, that spins a propeller. So that is a separate thing. The airliners, we, they don't fly those uh, for the most part. One airline does, but uh, we won't get into that. We'll, we'll focus on, on the one that uh, this uh, lady is flying on, which is called an ATR, and that is, is a turbine airplane. And I think what's really important to note about that, and I just want to expand on what Joey said very briefly on this, a turbine engine is extremely reliable, and a turbine engine means that essentially it uh, it spins, it takes air in, it compresses the air, it ignites it, uh, which then creates the power, and then it pushes it out of the back of the engine. That's actually not what's creating the thrust that the airplane is getting from those engines. What's creating the thrust is what that core section is connected to at the front. And so on a jet that you would traditionally think of like something that you know, let's just say Southwest Airlines would fly, it's connected to what looks like a fan, and that fan is shrouded. And so if you take, you know, take the image of a cup, cut the bottom of the cup off, and then plug a fan in there that fits really well, that's kind of what a jet engine looks like. Now, take that cup off and just leave the fan, you have a prop plane that's a turbine. So it's just a little bit different of a style, but it's still the same technology. So... A prop plane, like Joey said, is is still safe. I actually just booked a flight on a prop plane uh, that's that's an airliner for March. I'm perfectly comfortable uh, getting on that airplane. So, um, you know, people do get a little bit nervous around them. They're louder. Uh, they vibrate a little bit more. But they just serve to, to fly a different mission. They're more fuel efficient down low. So if you're doing a short hop like uh, something from Miami to St. Thomas, you may be on a prop plane. Uh, just because it's a little bit shorter of a hop and, and that airplane is better suited for it from an economic standpoint. So that's kind of the idea uh, behind why those prop planes even exist anymore. 
Yeah, that's great. Um, and good things to add on. I've flown on prop planes many times. I don't even think about it. I mean, because because of all the things that Kyle said. So, uh, next question comes from RHQ one zero. It's either another one or an L. RHQ one zero one. We'll call it. I'm scared that parts will fl- fall off like a wing or something. Um, I'm actually surprised how many times I I get this question. I just smile because we know the standards and uh, that these aircraft have to go through in order for us to fly them. So I don't mean the smile because I think it's a silly question. I think it's a very valid question. But just because me and Kyle know what these aircraft had to go through to get certified is what makes me kind of kind of smirk. So um, since he specifically mentioned wing, I want to bring that up. One of the things I talk about on the calls uh, is that these wings are stress tested to a ridiculous degree. So, you know, obviously when you're you're doing a flight and you look outside and you see the wing bouncing around uh, because of turbulence, that's all totally normal, all built into the aircraft. But what they actually do in the manufacturing and why I want to bring up the bouncing is that people are like, oh, no, the wing is going to bounce off and it's just bouncing a couple of feet. What they do in the manufacturing of these aircraft is they strap a harness to the end of the wing and they lift it as far as it will go until it snaps. And in some cases, these wings are going almost 90 degrees up. And that's a lot of feet, way more than you would ever see if you just look out, even during like a severe turbulent situation. So where I'm going with that is these wings are stressed to about 1.5 or more times what you would ever experience during a flight. That includes turbulence, severe turbulence, all that. Um, the wings aren't going anywhere. And these are. this goes into a whole different rabbit hole about maintenance, which I'll, I'll quickly hit on here. But the maintenance on these things, every certain amount of time, I, I don't know the exact time, these have to go in for heavy checks. And what a heavy check is, is they bring it out of passenger service. They take it into those hangars that you see at the airport that say, you know, Delta or United or American. And they literally undo the maintenance panels on them. And they look at all the rivets, the screws, the engines. They take the engines completely apart. They look at all the communication equipment, all these different things multiple times uh, in a year. And not only that, the pilots do a walk around, the maintenance does a walk around before each flight. And then not not only are those two doing the walk arounds, but so are even the people that are loading bags. Uh, And the gate agents are, are also looking if there's something wrong. And everybody feels empowered to say something. So Obviously, this is going out a little bit of the scope of the question, but kind of stays within as well, just to know that there are a lot of eyes on these aircraft, and not only just before the flight, but again, like I said, they bring them into the hangars and do full heavy checks on them and check every little thing that you would actually be surprised how many of the things that they check um, and how much money it costs, but they want to make sure that these are safe so that nothing like the question RHQ asked uh, happen. So again, I specifically talked about the wings there, but that is the same for every little piece of the aircraft. And then the other thing here is uh, that I quickly want to add, if you go to Ace Hardware and look at a screw, um, you're going to see that that screw is, is relatively inexpensive. Now you go and look at how much an airplane screw costs, uh, and it's going to be 10 times that much because it got certified to that degree by the FAA. And so everything is scrutinized all the way down to the screws uh, on these aircrafts. Kyle, what else you got to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you I think it was really well said. Honestly, I, I don't have anything else to add, uh, you know, that wouldn't just be kind of rephrasing what you said. So I, I think we'll just sure. pop right into the next one. Uh, and this one comes from Spidey Whoop. And the question is, what if the sky was 100% covered with cumulonimbus, meaning thunderstorms? How can you land or avoid such thing? This me- this means you won't land or how? Question mark. So uh, if the sky was 100% covered with cumulonimbus, so really what this would mean is the sky has thunderstorms all over the place. And the environment that we fly in is really kind of a a macro climate because we're obviously covering thousands of miles in any given flight and you know an area that that experiences thunderstorms as we talked about just a little bit earlier maybe a very localized spot thunderstorms they can exist in a line that lasts a long way but they don't exist in this massive area typically now of course you know there's always exceptions to the rule but that's kind of the way it normally boils down so like when we're flying into a place like texas when the thunderstorms start moving through 
the air traffic control puts out a weather report and it will say, uh, you know, cumulonimbus clouds, 2,500 feet, heavy thunderstorms, heavy rain. It'll say something along those lines. This goes back to what we talked about earlier. We're just not going to go flying until that passes. And, and normally they'll pass in 15 to 20 minutes or so. And so the ground crews, if there's, you know, areas of, of lightning going on, I think it's within a 10 mile radius. The ground crews are all pulled inside out of abundance of caution for themselves. And we, the pilots and the passengers and the flight attendants, will actually all stay on the airplane because, of course, we're protected from that. And then once the ground reopens, they can come out. They can load the bags up, shut uh, all the doors and push us back, and off we go. So um, we won't fly into, you know, massive cumulonimbus clouds, uh, thunderstorms, anything like that, because those produce a lot of uh, weather phenomena that's, that's really an issue for an airplane. So... Again, we always go with that abundance of caution approach. And I think if, if there's any trend that comes along with these questions, it's this. There are things out there that are threats to an airplane. What is our job as the professional pilots? And that job is risk management and risk analysis and ensuring that we have lowered the risk that we are accepting on any given flight to the lowest acceptable place that we can. And so things like cumulonimbus clouds or a part of the airplane that we deem in the pre-flight isn't working appropriately, those are going to be things that shut the operation down for a certain period of time. Is it going to ground the airplane forever? No, likely not. But we always are making sure that there is a plan in place to ensure that high level of safety and and the lowest level of risk that we can possibly accept. So I think that that is kind of the the general consensus of what that question is. So again, always looking at the weather and we're not going to take off until it's safe to do so. Absolutely, and air traffic control will back us up on that. You've all heard your pilots say, uh, we have a wheels-up time in 45 minutes or a wheels-up time in an hour. Um, where that comes from has to do with uh, these big weather phenomena that, that uh, Kyle was talking about. So um, this next one comes from, it looks like we got time for just a couple more, comes from Lauren Bergman Messer. Uh, sorry if I mispronounced that but the question is i have an irrational fear of flying what's the one thing you tell someone like me to calm me down even just a bit kyle I'll let you go first all right lauren well first of all my the first thing i'm going to say and i'm going to say a lot so i'm going to kind of break the uh break the parameters of the question a little bit but the first thing i'm going to say is this the fear of flying is not irrational by any means Flying is statistically very safe, but it's totally okay and acceptable to not understand why that is unless you're a professional pilot. Then you obviously do have to understand why that is because we're the ones that are carrying that out in association with a lot of other folks. So for you to be afraid of flying, that's totally fair. You're getting on a metal tube going 500 miles per hour at 40,000 feet with two people in charge that you have no idea who they are. That's scary, and it's okay to be scared. So you know, I'm uh, I'm a little bit of a fan of the movie Talladega Nights. So as Reese Bobby once said, you got to make friends with that fear. So I just think it's really important for someone like this to understand that, hey, it's okay for me to be afraid of this and for me to need to know more about this in order to allow my mind to grasp the concept of flying being safe and me being okay and in in an environment that it's acceptable to be under the care of somebody else, in this case, namely the pilots and the flight attendants. So that's my first thing uh, for you, Lauren, is, is don't beat yourself up over the fear of flying. It's, it's totally common and, and very, very rational. So that's why we started this service. And so what we're trying to do is get out here and just talk to folks and say, hey, this is why takeoff is safe. This is why landing is safe. This is how the pilots do the takeoff and how they do the landing. These are the different procedures and policies that we use. This is how our dispatchers back us up. This is, you know, all of those things. And so what you could do is you can actually give one of us, one of the pilots, a call. And you can have that conversation and get your questions answered in a way that doesn't, it's not a judgmental conversation. You can ask anything you want. There's no dumb questions. This is a very complex subject. And beyond that, another thing that we're doing is creating an environment where you can come in and ask the questions and talk with other nervous flyers. And we have multiple videos available that you can say, I'm nervous about takeoff and I've got four, th- three or four takeoff videos in there. What happens if we have a failure before 
this speed? What happens if we have a failure after this speed? What happens if the engine fails after takeoff? And we just answer all those questions to ensure that you kind of know that there's a plan for everything. Are all of those answers going to stick the first time you listen to them? Probably not. It's complex stuff, but you have access to keep going back and, and listening to them. And I also think that having a community of people that are also experiencing this and wanting to travel, but their mind is kind of taking over and getting them into a panic situation, them sharing their stories with each other and having the pilots be a part of that journey to say, hey, it's okay that you're nervous about how windy it's going to be at landing. That's fine. I'm not going to tell you not to think about it, but I'm going to tell you what the pilots are thinking about it and how they plan to deal with that situation. So, uh, Lauren, your question is one that I think is really kind of the fundamental question behind why we founded this service to help folks like yourself is there's not one simple thing that, that I personally believe that you can do to overcome that fear uh, overnight. You know, I, I always tell folks, hey, this is not the blue pill. We are not going to just have one conversation and, and it's over. Uh, you know, as far as, as your fear is gone and, and likely you're going to feel a lot better. We hope that you do. And that's always our goal. But it's a relationship that that allows you to move through that fear and, and gain a lot of confidence in it. And in fact, we've actually had a few clients. This is really cool for me, Joey, uh, that have gone and taken discovery flights because all of a sudden it, it piqued an interest in aviation for them. So, mm. uh, you know, a little bit of a plug there and I apologize if that got too pitchy but but that's really what the goal is here is is to allow people to just understand hey th it's okay it's okay to be afraid of flying yeah that's that's all great and again I love doing this because I get to hear what individuals which these individuals are our passengers what they're worried about um, and again I just love giving them an insight into what we're thinking about and whether or not we are uh, concerned or afraid about the same things which in most cases we're not um, when when you're in control you're just you're just not worried but back to her question um, the one thing that I like to do and it's cliche but that's because I'm a numbers numbers guy is just the the statistics of how safe aviation is and I know you, those of you that are nervous about flying or, or have anxieties get told this every time you tell anybody that you're afraid. But it's so true, and you just have to look at the stats, is the most dangerous part of your day when you go fly is the drive to the airport. And again, I know that's cliche, but it's true. And it's something that when I was younger, because uh, I, little known fact, I actually was afraid of flying when I was a kid, in fourth grade specifically. I told my mom that I'll never fly again, and then here I am all these years later. But that's what I told myself is how many airplanes are up in the sky and how many cars every day you hear about a car accident, a fatal car accident, but not every day, not every once in a decade do you hear about anything fatal related to commercial airliners. So that's the advice I would say is that flying statistically is the safest mode of transportation, I think, uh, ever. That might need to be fact-checked. But um, it, it's very safe is, is where we're going with that. And what I'm learning here is that there are a lot of questions. We're, we're literally just scrolling through TikTok uh, and finding all these questions. And so we're probably going to cut it there and uh, and have to make a part two Q&A. And that makes me excited because that will give those of you listening chances to submit more questions and, and ask us anything you want. There's no dumb question. There's no silly question. There's certain questions that we kind of have to skirt around um, just because of the uh, nature of what we do. And those specifically have to do with like terrorism questions, 9-11 uh, questions. Obviously, 9-11 was an extremely tragic day. Um, you know, suicides are extremely tragic. So there's questions that we get about pilot suicides or 9-11 or terrorism. Unfortunately, our hands are tied, especially with the terrorism questions, um, because we can't share that because it's what we call uh, security safe information, SSI. Um, I might have butchered that. But either way, it's something that we can't talk about. So but we do want to hear all the questions. So if you do ask something like that, you know, maybe on an individual phone call, we can talk about different things more. But even in that regard, we, we can't really talk about a whole lot. But, yeah, we still have more questions to go here. Um, and we're obviously coming up on our time. So we really want you to get on the socials and, and ask more questions so we can do this again, do a part two. And then I'm going to kick it to Kyle uh, to kind of close us out here. But, again, thank you for listening. Um, we really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun to do this podcast, and, and I look forward to doing the next Q&A. Yeah, well said, Joey. Uh, and 
I think it's sensitive security information is uh, is what you were looking for That's there. That's the one. Uh, but no, you're exactly right. There's just yeah, there's just certain things that we can't uh, divulge because it's on what's called a need to know basis, and so. Uh, the way that I like to approach that is just saying, hey, there is a plan for it, but it's just not something I can share, uh, you know, in a in a environment like this in the interest of protecting aviation safety. So I think that's really the big takeaway there. Um, I will say on the dial a pilot stuff, uh, as we've gone through and kind of expanded this community uh, and, and this group, I've realized that there are so many folks that uh, really kind of lean on one another's shoulders to kind of move through this. And whether that's the pilots that they're leading on or their fellow passengers to see that, uh, you know, somebody just like them is experiencing the same thing and able to get through it with confidence. Uh, we have started to make a product for, for those folks. And, and what that is turning into is a membership community uh, that, that offers uh, exclusive pricing and uh, really the membership and the content and, uh, downloadable things that you can take on the airplane and, and just being able to interact with each other. And so that's currently in its beta test right now. We're, we're not accepting new folks at this point in time. Um, I want to ensure that we build that in a way that is very uh, strategic and making sure that we get it right. And everybody is, you know, using their real name. There's no trolling going on. The pilots are labeled as professional pilots. They're vetted. They are either active or retired U.S.-based airline pilots. And so that's what the goal of that is. And uh, stay tuned for updates on that. I'll be excited to continue to uh, kind of trickle more folks in there to make sure that we're building that out in a really, really good way that, that people are getting a lot of value out of. So uh, that's kind of one of the big things that we're doing. And then, of course, just our phone calls. So if you're coming up on a flight that that's making you feel nervous, give us a call and uh, – you know, you can schedule that right on our website, and we'll be, we'll be excited to talk to you. Joey and I are just two of the pilots. We actually have 10 uh, that are working with us from all over the industry, which is just great. Again, all U.S.-based uh, airline pilots, both retired and active. Uh, so that's that's just about it, I think, for today. And like Joey said, uh, please let us know on the social channels what, what you'd like to hear from us. And uh, thank you, as always, for tuning in. It's it's such a pleasure to to have the opportunity to uh, share our passion with folks that just need a little bit more guidance in getting through their fear of flying and feeling confident to travel again. So we we can't appreciate or we can't express how much we appreciate your participation in this enough. So uh, from the from the dial pilot team and from Joey and I, we we want to thank you one last time. <laughs>